Welcome to ASS 233 Myth and Ritual. Uh, this is lecture number seven. And uh, I've entitled this lecture Ritual Time. And uh, this lecture um, is the first in the second half of, so to speak, of the unit in that it is concerned with ritual rather than myth. So we're moving, we're in the home stretch now. But I want to stress that much of what I'm going to be saying about ritual uh, in this second half of the unit uh, is heavily informed by the argument that I've tried to develop uh, concerning the nature of myth. So one does very much lead and into and inform the other, I hope. So what I would like to do today, though, is just make a few final remarks about um, myth, structuralist analysis of myth, uh, and also just taking note of some of the themes in association with mythology that we didn't look at. Uh, largely because of time. So we need to move on. And so we've only really uh, touched upon uh, the nature of mythology and where mythology exists in everyday culture. Uh, there are other sorts of arguments and discussions that we could be having, but we don't really have time to do it. So within the structure of a trimester system and the amount of content that one can deliver in the method by, by which Deacon does its teaching, this is what you get, I'm afraid. Uh, it's more like a what's called a degustation menu, I think is the term, tasting. Anyway, um, then I want to... Uh, then I want to introduce the question of um, of ritual, but I want to do that by addressing our everyday, taken for granted, received wisdom or received knowledge and received understandings about what we think a ritual is. So how do we know? A ritual is going on when we are in the middle of it. What makes us say, ah, yes, it's a ritual. Do we take our hats off? Do we put our hats on? Do we take our shoes off, put our shoes on? Do we tear off our clothing? What is it? What do we do? How do we know a ritual is a ritual? And then one of the first and strongest points I want to emphasise about ritual and how it is that we know a ritual is a ritual is to address the question of the rhythm of, of ritual. And associated with the rhythm of ritual is the sense of ritual repetitiveness, the ways in which ritual practice uh, are oftentimes recognised or their ritualism is recognised because they're repetitive. 
And that then raises another question, because for many of us, um, we can't we can't go to bed at night unless we have brushed our teeth. Uh, or we can't set out the door in the morning unless we've brushed our teeth. And so the brushing of one's teeth seems to be a highly repetitive action. And then people say, yes, you know, it's a ritual. Uh, the ritual of brushing one's teeth. And the question is, well, hang on, just because it's repetitive, does that make it ritual? And so this is what I want us to start asking ourselves as to what constitutes a practice as a ritual practice. Okay, to summarise the study of myth, in this admittedly extremely brief um, introduction to the study of myth, the themes that I wanted to emphasise, and I have emphasised, have concerned um, the idea of uh, recurring motifs and that the recurring motifs in mythology don't simply recur from one uh, myth to another within a body of myths, but also seem to get repeated from one tradition to another tradition so that you find certain common elements um, in myths, and this is what seems to set mythical thought apart from other sorts of thought. And the question is, how are we meant to interpret these recurring themes? And this is something that has caught the imagination of many a mythologist. Uh, over a very long time. It's that sort of process of recognition whereby you see certain themes uh, repeating themselves and doing it in quite diverse geographical locations. And that then prompts the suggestion that maybe they've all got a common meaning. Just because these are recurring themes, there must then be a recurring point in these themes. And that maybe this is what connects humans across vastly different um, orders of space and time. And we then were introduced to these three approaches or, or two approaches. Um, where one of the one of those two approaches has these two variations, so the psychoanalytic and the structuralist. And the point that I said that they had in common, what they all had in common, was a theory of the unconscious. And it's this theory of the unconscious that then seems to be a recurring uh, idea um, in mythologies, that all mythologies seem to be talking to some interior condition of the human. And it's this interior condition of the human that fascinates us. How are we to understand this interior condition of the human? Are we to understand it in terms of its desires? 
or are we to understand it in terms of its rationality, um, of its capacity for rational thought? Or are we to understand it in terms of its ability to project itself, its own interiority, to be projected into the world so that the world becomes a series of symbolic motifs for itself. Hence, for example, the projection of mythical thought in the film 2001, where technology, the technology of 2001, human technology, is now the projection into the world of human being. And that this sense that the world is created in this projection of human technology into the world and beyond is an example of mythical thought because what you're doing is you're putting the human, you're projecting that interior human into the world. And there's then the question of, well, what do you do that once you put it out there? And, and so this is the argument that, that I was trying to develop by looking at these three theorists of the unconscious, Freud, Jung and Levi-Strauss. Now, I admit Jung and Freud are very similar, but with very important differences between the individualism of Freud and the collectivism of Jung. But both of them were interested in this projection of an unconscious, the, the interior, the human interior. And it's this idea, this concept of the human interior that I'm most interested in. Uh, and the reason why I'm most interested in it is not because I want to defend Freud and his approach or Jung and his approach or Levi-Strauss and his approach. Rather, I'm interested in how this idea of the unconscious in mythology is this projected interior is a recurring theme of mythology itself in the sense that you see in creation myths the recurring theme of chaos, of the abyss, of the primordial condition that is prior to existence. When, as the Rig Veda said, neither being nor not being was. Now, it's that capacity of the human being to imagine that moment, to imagine that possibility, is I'm also suggesting the ability of the human being to imagine something called an unconscious, that the unconscious is indeed the chaos, the abyss, the primordial condition that is prior to human being, and that the unconscious is indeed one of the dominant mythological concepts of modernity, of the 20th century in Western thought. And so that's why we track from ancient Greece, ancient India, ancient Egypt, ancient wherever else um, we wanted to go, 
and how we could track that and then look and move into looking at certain types of mythological discourse of which I was suggesting uh, the psychoanalytic is an example. So that's what the whole point then behind uh, that first part of the, the unit uh, was, was to, was to basically say that human beings um, not only tell stories and that tell stories that they live by, uh, as many would-be uh, anthropologists um, would say, it's not just that, it's that these stories um, they create a certain kind of condition in human being, which is an imaginary condition. Imaginary in the sense that they enable us to be put ourselves into the world um, and let the world talk back at us. And so that's what I was trying to do uh, in that. Now, it has to be cut short at the very point when you could say it's going to get really interesting because we could now move into all manner of considerations of things like nationalist mythologies. Uh, we just had Anzac Day last weekend here in Australia. And Anzac Day has all of the qualities of this kind of mythical thought that I've been talking about. Now, we might call it legendary rather than mythical, and the reason we do that is just to make a certain kind of distinction, an analytical distinction, between uh, stories which are based on, you know, pure speculative imagination, like, you know, in the beginning that there was neither being nor not being and darkness swathed in darkness. You know, this is purely speculative to something like, you know, the landing of Australian, New Zealand, French and English. Um, they were there too. Uh, soldiers, when they invaded Turkey, um, uh, fighting for our freedom by in invading Turkey in 1915. And when we read the accounts and we can say, well, these are not fanciful, you know, this is not like the moon landings that were faked. Of course they weren't, I'm joking. These landings, this invasion happened. The invasion of Turkey happened, and so we'll call it legendary. But notwithstanding, that's just an, a man, and that's a minor anal, analytical distinction that might be more relevant to historians than to us. For us, the critical point is that we can see that these sorts of stories, mythical thought, can have incredible impact in terms of their ability to mobilise people uh, around a nationalist idea. Uh, and so nationalist, the, the, the politics of mythology is a huge area to consider. Uh, and we haven't had any real time to consider it. But you could go off in that direction. Uh, you could also go off in, uh, in other directions that would want to explore things other than the notion of the unconscious. Um, and with that, 
also, though, may want to stay looking at the unconscious and stay within psychoanalytic terms of analysis, but look at other types of psychoanalysis than the uh, Freudian and Jungian and the critique from the structuralist. So that there are other ways of thinking about the nature of the unconscious. And these are forms of psychoanalysis which are informed by other, other theories, other important theories. And with that, other sorts of ideological critique, like, for example, a feminist critique and a feminist psychoanalysis. And then uh, certain psychoanalytic positions which would challenge the the fundamental um, binary genders that one sees in uh, mythologies, so that they all seem to sort of go male-female, bang-bang, male-female, either or, uh, black-white, up-down, etc., etc., so that you get a certain kind of binary uh, logic, and then you would say, well, we can begin to think of a non-binary approach to the nature of an unconscious. Uh, and this would move a long way from people like Jung uh, and also Freud. Uh, and so that would be another line of thought um, that we would go down. Um, and... Um, that would be the two principal ones that I would want to identify. Um, so looking more at the nature of the politics of mythology and then associated with that, I would be interested in the nature of the gender politics of mythology. However, we don't have time and we instead looked at what I presented here. Okay. And, um, and then finally, I did want to emphasize the structuralist approach, not only because that's a fundamental aspect of the anthropological approach, but I wanted to teach in the process what I meant by how anthropology goes about its business. I mean, this is an anthropology unit. It's an anthropology of myth and ritual. And the critical thing about anthropology, the very nature of anthropology of a discipline is that anthropology is a discipline that is always asking you to question your taken for granted assumptions uh, about the nature of the world and the extent to which you arrive at a phenomenon you, you arrive at an object of study, so you set out to study something, you always bring a certain amount of baggage with you. And this baggage is a product of your own personal history and the times in which you lived and the culture uh, to which you belong. And these inform your taken-for-granted understanding of what this world is. And Anthropology is the discipline that says, careful how you generalise that, because you are a discrete being. You were thrown into the world, or born, 
um, this concept of thrownness is a philosophical concept in phenomenology, whereby so much of the world into which you were born is already there, and its order and logic is kind of given. This is the way it is, you know, because, you, says a parent to the child, because. So you're thrown into that situation. But anthropology says, yeah, but, you know, it's totally contingent. You have to understand that, you know, you cannot assume this to be an absolute truth. And you cannot assume when you're looking at the other, at another person, another world, another culture, that their cultural understandings are just, you know, basically your cultural understandings in a funny language. You know, that they, you know, they're sort of, they're basically your ideas, but they're just said differently, you know. So you say tomato, I say tomato, but it's still the same fruit. Anthropology challenges that idea. It's not challenging the idea that the tomato isn't a fruit and that there are not different ways of saying it, but it's it's also saying that when we're talking about cultural knowledge, we're not just talking about tomatoes or tomatoes. We're talking very often about very, very different understandings about the nature of the world and don't, for an instant, try to assume that this other person is just you in a different garb. Now, some people go, oh, my God, you're a racist, you're a racist. No, it's not about being racist. It's about acknowledging difference. Human difference. And when you can acknowledge human difference, you're going a long way to stopping the kind of fascist projection of yourself into the world to say, you are just like me. It's like, well, the hell I am. Maybe I am just like myself. That's the point that we're trying to get at. Anthropology is designed to make us uncomfortable about our taken-for-granted understandings. Levi-Strauss's critique of the psychoanalytic approach and its claims to universal knowledge is first and foremost a critique of those claims. It's not saying it's false. It's just challenging its universal application. And that's where anthropology comes from. Anthropology is always pushing that little envelope that we don't quite know that the other is just a variation of myself. And let's stop trying to force that person to be me because that's what fascists do. And there are many other disciplines. If you prefer the fascist approach, well, they exist. They're very busy and they're very active. They're very busy and active even in the corridors of Deacon. But anthropology doesn't. Not at least my anthropology. Right. The other point that I was stressing all the way through, but right from the outset with this unit, was that we don't ta- start with the assumption that mythical thought is somehow a form of thought that is what the Ongo Bongo does. That approach really annoys me. 
It really, really annoys me. Because it's built on the idea that myths are false and rituals are absurd. And that this is what silly people do. Silly, ignorant people, primitive people, the ongo bongo. Oh, yeah, all of those people who haven't learned how to dress themselves yet. So they're still running around naked like babies. And they've got myths. We've got history. They've got rituals. We've got games. They've got irrationality. We've got rationality. And so you have that understanding and then you say, oh, well, I'm going to understand these myths and these rituals and I'm going to try and understand how the Ongo Bongo are thinking, knowing that they're not thinking very well because they're so bloody primitive, aren't they just? Well, that kind of primitivism gets not only me, but any decent anthropologist bloody annoyed. Because it's so patronising, it's so supremacist in its thinking. Our starting point is everybody's stupid, not just the Ongo Bongo, but everybody. And by that I mean no one is stupid and no one is at some stage of intellectual development uh, according to some civilization or projection and plan and whatever and whatever sure some people have developed far better technologies for destroying each other and for destroying the planet and we have to put our hands together and applaud them and say they have really been marvelous that not only can they travel in through the air and go to other planets? They can also totally fuck the world over and fuck other people over when, while they're doing it. And they're damn good at it. And we've got to congratulate them for their achievement. But let's not think of them as superior and superior in their thought. And this is critical to saying let's not think of myth as false belief or that myth is somehow not philosophy. Mythical thought is very much ingrained in philosophical thought. Myths explore fundamental human problems like, for example, the origins of suffering. Where do the diseases come from? What is the nature of hope? How does hope distinguish the human from other animals? These are philosophical questions that myths explore. And so to think that myth is just, oh, you know, I think I'll wear a funny costume and run around and with a sword and tell people I'm a hero. No. I will deal with big ideas and big concepts. And that mythical thought is often how humans do that. Hence, we dissolve the separation between myth and philosophy and then we take on a myth, 2001 A Space Odyssey, 
and we say, you know, it's really dealing with big philosophical concepts, uh, particularly associated with a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche and the idea of eternal return. So that's where it's also going, that this is the idea that mythical thought is also, you know, very, very human, and it's about the human as philosopher. And so we can begin to see how certain philosophical ideas are present in myth. And these philosophical ideas can be Nietzschean. And as we also see in 2001, A Space Odyssey, they're also strongly Buddhist uh, in, in their thinking. So that myths, myth is not sort of some sort of just a sort of story time. It's telling a much bigger picture. And in order to celebrate that, in order to celebrate that aspect of mythical thought, its philosophical dimensions, its creativity, its imaginativeness, I briefly railed against those types of explanations or the explanatory accounts of mythology that try to understand a myth as fundamentally irrational, so it's fundamentally false, so it's fundamentally stupid. Hey, look at the dude with the head of an elephant. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, look at that man-lion who tells riddles. Oh, well, how silly. Um, and so, oh, well, if we know it to be a false account of the world, it must be doing something else. Otherwise, why are they telling it? And those other things are never thought of as, as philosophical speculations. They're thought of as, as, as achieving some purpose, as if these, as if myth is a technology. Oh, you know, how do I, how do I farm better? Oh, I dig up the dirt before I put the seed in. Oh, how do you do that? Well, I use a stick. Oh, that's very clever. What do you call that? Oh, it's a plow. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, it's a technology. Right. Um, what's a myth? Oh, well, a myth also is a kind of a technology. It must be doing something. It must be ploughing the earth or something like that. It must be legitimating somebody's authority. Or it must be providing people with this pathetic explanation for why things happen. Like, you know, why does thunder, uh, why does thunder happen and why is there also lightning? And why does the lightning sometimes strike people in the head and kill them? Oh, and so let's have a myth. So then myth becomes a kind of a primitive um, pacifier to an agitated, irrational consciousness. Or it's there going to, you know, make everybody feel happy and feel solidarity because it's going to give them identity, you know, and all those sorts of things. That's what I call functionalism, okay? It's not what a myth is, what it is what it does. Now, myths can do all of those sorts of things, but they can also get it all wrong. So to reduce myth to its function is uh, to tread on very thin ice because myths can be a disaster. They can delegitimate. Um, they can cause anxiety rather than ameliorate anxiety. So don't reduce myth to its function. We know that myths have functions. Everything has a function but don't reduce everything to its function. 
To do that is to get into a certain kind of economism. You know, well, what's what, what's its contribution? You know, and it's you end up sounding like that bloody awful uncle at that bar- Sunday afternoon barbecue saying, what are you doing an arts degree for? What sort of job's that going to get you? And it's like, it's not going to get me a job necessarily, Uncle Bob. It's just going to mean that I'm not as stupid as you are, you dill. But, <laughs> poor old Uncle Bob. Um, the point that I'm making is you don't want to push it into that kind of economism because if you do that, Actually, you get into an, all sorts of a mess. Like, why have birthdays? Why have weddings? Why go on holidays? Why have pictures on the wall? Why do anything with any kind of enjoyment? Um, because ultimately, it's not serving a functional purpose. Ugh. So that way, there be there be demons, very boring ones. Okay, so that wraps it up. That basically wraps up what I've been trying to say uh, in six weeks, uh, in about 20 minutes. Let's move on. <sighs> I'll pause. And I want to ask people, can't really do it because you're not in the lecture theatre with me, but I want you to tell me, um, of these two pictures that I've put here, one of them is a photograph of an English fox hunt. So this is where human beings wear costumes, get on horses and go riding around in the countryside with a group of dogs. Hunting for a fox. Okay. And the second picture is an old photograph from 1939 (coughs) from Florida in the United States of America. And it is a photograph of a group of men. We know they're men. um, And they're all standing in costumes in a particular formation. with their arms in particular postures, they're standing there and they're watching um, a 15-foot-high wooden cross burning. The cross consists of two pieces of wood that have been stuck together. Now, my question to you is which of those two pictures is a picture of a ritual? Is it the one on the left or the one on the right? Now, I want you to just, I mean, you can't tell me, but I want you to just think about it and make your mind up. And then I want to throw in another possibility. I gave you an either-or choice there, the one on the left or the one on the right. The third choice would be, Both of those pictures is a picture of a ritual. And then the fourth option would be neither of them is a picture of a ritual. So I've got, I've got two pictures 
describing two things, an English fox hunt and a, an American Ku Klux Klan meeting. And I'm asking, are either of those things a ritual or neither of those things a ritual? If you chose something, now ask, I want to know, why did you make that decision? What drove you to make that choice about the ritual? Was it your cultural memory? So, for example, some of you might be looking at this picture and you're thinking, well, I've got a Christian background and I recognise that burning cross. And that burning cross is the key, not burning, but the cross is the key symbol of Christianity. It's the, it's the, it's the number one symbol of Christianity. And you see some people and some of you may even have <coughs> a silver or gold, um, cross, crucifix around your neck on a chain. And you know that by wearing that, you're saying, I am a Christian. So we know that. And so when you see that burning cross there, you can say, well, I think that one's a ritual because I can recognize the religious paraphernalia, the religious item. I can also see that the people in that photograph, they've lined themselves up. So they, they, they are also in a cross. So I'm going to say that they're engaged in a ritual. Okay, now somebody else might look at this and say, well, I've never seen anything like it before in my life. I don't come from a Christian background. I don't recognise that, that crucifix. But I'm looking at this other one and I'm thinking, what costumes are they wearing? These people on the Ku Klux Klan photograph are wearing a very strange costume. The people on the left are also wearing very strange costumes. I don't recognise those costumes as traditional English dress. I don't think I've ever seen a movie or television show where you, you see English people walking down the street or going to the pub wearing those sorts of clothes. So I'm going to suggest that on the basis of those costumes, these people are in both, in both groups are engaged in a ritual practice. I cannot see any religious paraphernalia on the left other than the way English, the English seem to love their dogs and their horses, but <coughs> I can't see anything there, so I'm not sure that I've got that. So there's nothing recognisable, whereas I have on the other photograph something recognisable, a certain resonance. But I don't know. Okay, now let's just keep that one on hold, now thinking about it, and let's consider this, <coughs> these two pictures. First picture on the left, the green one, that is a picture of a place called Newgrange, uh, which is just to the north of uh, Dublin, near the river, uh, the Boyne River. And it is a, 
a structure, a human-made structure uh, that is probably in the order of about three and a half thousand years old, and it is what they call a slit temple. And it's called a slit temple because if you look at the front of the temple, you can see the whitewashed wall uh, that forms the bottom part of the circle of that structure. And you can see that, oh, okay, it's a mound. And if I look at the bit of the, the white bit at the front, it looks like it's sort of, uh, the, I track the thing around towards the middle and then I can see that that white bit opens up and I can just make out this very narrow slit entranceway with a kind of a, a paved four, forecourt just in front of it and possibly some people in that space there as well. Now, I'm looking there at the entrance to that and that is what's underneath it. It looks like the mountain, the hill. It just looks like dirt under there. It's not. It's dirt that's been put onto piled up stones. And those stones are piled up in such a way to create uh, a self-supporting roof structure in a kind of coil, a little bit like a, 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 a you know, a, um, a snail shell, if you like, or a, or a certain type of snails. You'll see that coiling of the shell. That's underneath the dirt. And then on top of the dirt, there's grass growing. But inside there is this structure and it's got this tiny little entranceway. Now, the interesting thing about Newgrange is that that tiny little entranceway and the position of that entrance on the circular shrine is such that every year on the 21st of December, we're talking about the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. We're talking about the shortest day of the year. What is down here in Australia, the longest day of the year. But on, on this day, the shortest day of the year, the sun rises exactly in line with the entrance to that slip temple and the centre of that structure, so that the sun is absolutely aligned to shine through the slip entranceway and light up the interior of that shrine every year on the shortest day, the winter solstice. And so the Newgrange uh, shrine is a gigantic clock that marks the date of the shortest day of the year. Okay, stepping across and looking at the other picture, and this is a photograph from the interior of the Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance. The Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance, which was built in the 19 <coughs> 1930s, is built in such a way that in its roof structure, there is a, there's a hole that's positioned so that every year at 11am 
on the 11th of November, light shines through that slit and gets turned into a beam of light and it lights up and the, the, lit, the, the ray of light that's formed by the little aperture lights up the absolute centre of the middle of that structure, which is the memorial to the unknown soldier, to the, to the soldier who fought in the First World War. The 11th of November at 11 o'clock is the date when the war ended. And that date is a sacred moment. The state and the time is the sacred moment for the ending of war. And it's remembered every year in the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne in a 20th century structure. But it's following exactly the same logic of the New Grange um, Shrine, which is just happens to be about three and a half thousand years older. But they're both of them timepieces. And they're also ritual architecture. So that's my second point to keep in mind. That when I think about rituals, I think about a particular time reference that rituals have. They can commemorate certain times. They can create certain times. They can commemorate certain junctures in one's life, such as a birth or and or a death. So that the key element that is there in ritual practice is the idea of time. So when I say um jokingly here where do rituals come from um and that they are clearly supplying us with a, a, a wonderful use for old bed sheets uh, i'm just being funny or oh, sorry <laughs> a bit presumptuous of me i'm just trying to be funny um i love the fact that when people um um invent traditions so that when people when people uh as you see here with 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 what's called neo-paganism and this is a picture in britain from an ancient ancient Ro- uh, roman well well before roman we're talking around the times of newgrange um and we're talking about these stone um, structures like Stonehenge is one example, but there are others. And what's very striking about them is that they always go with this circular shape and they have that time referent, not unlike a clock face or a watch face. They have a certain time referent about them. They are structures that, that measure time. Um, but I just love the fact that when people try to reinvent these traditions and they don't, they don't know what the original practices were. So they're making it up as they go along. But generally they say, right, get out the bed sheets. <laughs> but the point about the bed sheets, I'm not suggesting that neo-pagans in Britain 
are a, a, a racist white supremacists as they are in the Ku Klux Klan. Not at all. But I am pointing to their ritualism and I'm spotting a certain phenomenon in common. And um, uh, and I also note that there is oftentimes a, a, a real formula to their costume, to the ritual costume. But it's not just the formula of ritual costume. It's the sense of it runs to its own time rhythm. These rituals work to their own time rhythm. And humans are sort of structured into uh, a particular relationship to time, a certain kind of order of time uh, that um, that is a fundamental feature of ritual practice. Now, you can turn around and say to me, yeah, but, you know, So is a game of football. I mean, doesn't a game of football have a a start and then it goes for a certain length of time and then they stop and then they all swap ends and start again and that goes for a bit longer and then they all stop and then they all, you know, eat caught, you know, pieces of orange. Uh, I'm sure these people in the big games don't do what the kids used to do. And, you know, so really, what am I talking about? Am I talking about ritual or am I talking about games? You know, don't games work with their own time structures as well? So what's the big deal? My point is that ritual and game are very, very closely connected, absolutely closely connected. They are extremely structured in terms of how they expect people to behave, how they expect people to deport themselves uh, and their bodies uh, in certain ways, following, so to speak, the rules of the game. So this picture on the left from an Australian rules football match, we know that in that game, and people who know the game know that the ball, the yellow little thing right in the top of the picture has just been pushed into the ground so it's bounced and it's high up in the air and two players and only two players from each, one from each side are meant to jump up and hit the ball with their fists um, and then there are certain rules that say if they take the ball in both hands and then throw the ball to someone oh that's wrong you're not allowed to do that if you're going to pass the ball to somebody else by hand, you're not allowed to actually physically give it to them and then they take it from you. You're meant to hold the ball in one hand and hit it with the other hand, but only with a closed fist. So you've got very prescriptive rules about what you can do with the ball. And then the other way to move the ball is to kick it with your foot. And if you kick it with your foot, a whole series of rules uh, associated with that if the person catches it or doesn't catch it and so on and so forth. Okay, so we recognise that in a game we can see that rules of the body are enforced and any of us who know sport and have done any kind of sport know that this is that the key are the rules of the body. Okay. So what makes a ritual a ritual? 
Well, I would suggest that ritual borrows from the principles of game. It doesn't necessarily set teams in opposition to each other. They can all be working collectively and for each other. And again, go back and think about your neo-pagans and your Ku Klux Klan. And so you can recognise that it doesn't have to involve two sides, but that games do involve two sides. But the key thing, that, and this is why I put this particular picture of the Australian rules football up there, is that those of you who follow Australian rules football know that that's not just any game in the in the AFL season. That's the game that is played between the two teams, Richmond in the black and yellow and Essendon in the grey, red and white, but basically black and red, um, that those two teams will pay, always play each other on a certain weekend and they commemorate Australia's Indigenous past and Australia's Indigenous football traditions. And they'll even go so far as to recognise that the Australian game of football seems to have Indigenous Australian roots, in part, not entirely, but in part, um, in a game that was played uh, in parts of Western Victoria and elsewhere, perhaps. But this also borrows from other sports like rugby, Gaelic football, soccer, etc., etc. Now, the thing that I'm interested in with this particular game is that what you see in this particular game is indeed a ritual because what they do in this particular game when they make it a commemorative event is they change the costume. They change the symbolism and they change the structure of the game. They wear different jumpers at the game. They decorate the ground differently. Here you can see the the centre of the football field is decorated in the form of the Australian First Nations flag. And so you see games being ritualised. We just had one last Sunday uh, with the Anzac Day match that's always played every year uh, between Collingwood and uh and Essendon. Now uh and now, and here there's other photographs. Look, I'm just being rude. Um all Collingwood supporters can recognise that I'm just being rude um in suggesting that the Collingwood cheer squad and the famous guy in the white jacket there, his name is Joffa, and that what you're looking at there is a vision of hell. Um but that's just me being very, very rude to Collingwood supporters. Um, as part of the ritual um, of of bagging Collingwood supporters. Uh, but I am picking up on a certain resonance between what those the cheer squad supporters are doing um, with respect to another ritual practice, which is a baptism, a ritual baptism where a person is bathed in water and reborn. Speaking of Anzac Day, I'm just leaving up there. I've put the YouTube link, but you can see there was a remarkable event last year because because of the lockdown, they couldn't have the game. But they went ahead with the commemoration anyway, and they just put this fellow with the bugle to play the, the ritual tune, uh, and he was stood there right in the middle of the oval, 
on that spot, same spot, and he played his tune and there was nobody there. And it was all about the absolute emptiness, the absolute silence. But you could see in it the same amazing logic whereby humans and Australians are damn good at it, even though they think they've got no religion. Uh, Australians are damn good at ritualising and especially ritualising their sporting activities because sport in many respects is central to the ritual of Australian secular religion. That is the religion that isn't a religion. Okay, so quickly, ritual then has at its heart a sense of highly organised, formalised and repetitive behaviour. It works to its own time referent. That's the first and most important thing to remember about when you're looking at a ritual, you're looking at a form of behaviour that establishes a time referent. Now, games do that, but games have another aspect to them, which is the competition. Ritual doesn't necessarily take on a competitive sporting aspect, but it does work with its own sense of time. It creates its own space and time. And in as it creates its own space and time, which are kind of outside the ordinary flux of existence, it creates a notion of what we call the sacred, where the sacred is something that is set apart from the everyday. And then lastly, and this is what I will want to talk about in um, in the seminars, um, and in particular in the essay by Stephen Friedson on uh, trance dancing in West Africa. Um, and Friedson talks about the importance of certain types of ritual drumming in uh in West African and Ewa um culture. And uh it's where you have what's called cross rhythms. And so the drumming starts a conversation across the rhythm itself. This creates a certain kind of polyphony whereby it begins to sound like there's another beat going on inside the beating of the drums. So it sounds like somebody else starts playing a drum, but it's from the cross rhythms of the different drummers uh, playing together, but in their cross rhythms, certain a certain central rhythm emerges. Now, to understand that in Fried, from Friedson's account, I point you in the direction of this amazing YouTube clip uh, by this guy, C.K. Ledzekpo, uh, who is a musicologist and teacher of drumming at University of California in Berkeley. And that YouTube clip, he explains the nature of cross-rhythm drumming in really simple detail. It's beautiful to understand. He also gives his interpretation of what that cross-rhythm means and by doing that, it raises a really interesting parallel between what he says the cross rhythm polyphony means and what Steve Friedson says it means back in Ghana 
um, with the Ewa themselves. And so for doing the reading for the, the Steve Friedson piece, which is a wonderful article, absolutely wonderful article, but to make it live for you, please have a look at that YouTube clip before the seminar because I won't be able to show it in the seminar, but if we can have a look at it before, then people get it. And then then we'll be able to say, wow, so this is where the rhythm actually becomes thought of as a spirit, so that the rhythm, this cross rhythm, becomes the spirit that, that becomes present in the ritual event. And this is the key we then learn about the importance of rhythm, rhythm in ritual. Okay, that's the end of my lecture for this week, and I will see see you in the seminars uh, later today, tomorrow, and the next day. Okay, all the best, everyone. See you soon.